0: Welcome to Think Podcast. You're about to listen to an interview with Joe Templin, the author of Everyday Excellence, a daily reader designed to help you embed habits of excellence into your life and reach your goals.
1: So Joe, welcome. Good morning, right?
0: I guess it's afternoon where you are. It is. It's afternoon where I am, but that's okay. Why don't
1: you um, so introduce Let's you just to? go with good day. That good day.
0: Works. Good day is fine. Good day is fine. Joe, why don't you introduce yourself for us and um, we can get onto the book.
1: Sure. So I'm Joe Templin. I am a human Kaizen expert and the author of the Amazon Kindle number one new release, Everyday Excellence. So Everyday Excellence is essentially a multivitamin for life because we all have different components of our existence, whether it's our physical health, our spiritual health, our mental health, our work, our relationships, our nutrition, all these different components. And things tend to get overlooked simply because, like, if you're working for a startup company, you're working 70 hours a week and you're eating Doritos and drinking Mountain Dew and ignoring your physical health. Or you might be so caught up with work that you're ignoring your significant other. Or you have a sick kid, and so you're t- busy taking care of them, and so something else slipped. So the entire premise of the book is to, like a multivitamin, you take it every single morning, takes a couple of minutes, but it will help the individual, the reader, to be able to be slightly better in some capacity that day. And when you then compound that over days, weeks, months, and ultimately years, you get this wicked cool nonlinear growth curve, and we can do some pretty impressive things.
0: So what was the, I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. What was the impetus that made you sort of create this book what was spark the
1: idea to put all this stuff down on this paper so the actual spark that satori moment for me um i it was during covid i was uh part way through my divorce i was downstairs in my weight room and i was throwing around kettlebell like i do every uh most mornings you know 4 30 in the morning i'm blasting some black sabbath on one uh device and listening to Jocko Willink talk on the other one. Jocko, the uh, great, I guess he's a leadership guru now based on his military experience and uh, podcasts and books and all that. And he said something that resonated with me. He said, excellence is a habit. And I'm like throwing around the the bell and it's like, excellence is a habit. Habits need to be practiced every day. And all of a sudden, it hit me. Everyday excellence. I had literally the insight of to the structure of the book and everything. Put down the kettlebell, ran upstairs, brain dumped out for about fifteen minutes, the structure and the ideas and everything. Went back downstairs, finished my uh, workout because you have to finish what you start, and then came back up and spent the next two hours starting to work on the book, and then uh, using a good habit stack uh, concept from James Clear in Atomic Habits. I systematically worked on that book every single day. And in six months, I was able to produce a 700 page book.
0: That was going to be my next question. How long did it take you to produce? Because the book is essentially, you've taken a habit for each day of the year, 365 days. So the reader has every day, 366. Okay. So every day the reader can pick up, uh, just turn to a different page and have something to drive them forward for that day. I noticed when I was reading it, is there meant to be a specific structure that sort of was in your mind when you were writing out the habits? Were you ordering them in a particular way? Or were they just randomized?
1: So so what I did is there's a couple of days that are very specific. So like on Valentine's Day, there's a quote about love. On my parents' anniversary, there's a quote about uh, strong parents. On St. Patrick's Day, there's a quote about being Irish. On Star Wars Day, there's a quote about from uh, Master Yoda. So there's some subtle little things like that. There. And there's a couple of Easter egg type jokes in there. Like uh, one day I taught, I quote um, Hobbes, the uh, philosopher. One day I quote Calvin, actually. Next day I quote Hobbes. And then the third day I quote Bill Watterson, who is the creator of the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. So there's little things like that throughout it. But it's really designed to be very organic, sort of like James Joyce Ulysses, where each day sort of flows into the next one and then flows into the next. And then we echo some of the same concepts and thoughts throughout the year. So I will reference the same quote uh, from January in June, because that spaced repetition learning actually increases the retention from one of the things that we've learned. And so having these echoes of the same concepts and themes throughout the year make sure that nobody gets overloaded with one particular idea of getting hammered with it again and again and again, but more flowing so that way the reader can adopt what works best for them. Simply because I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect. I really don't want people to become clones of me because that'd be a very scary thing. But by giving them different insights and different ideas, the reader can find what works for them and move along their personal journey just with some additional guidance, and that's really the idea behind the structure of the book.
0: You're not meant to sort of follow it word for word, day for day. You're meant to sort of find the days that that resonate most with you for your particular journey. Is that well? You the, should do it through? every
1: day because it's the consistency. Just like mm-hmm. you know, if you practice an instrument every single day. Over Mm -hmm. a year, you're going to get much better. If you practice a language every single day, you're going to become much more comfortable in that language over time. So this is really giving people some of the language and tools around excellence, and they will pick up and do what is appropriate for them. There's some people who have severe depression, so they can only do a little bit of it. You know what? If they're doing just a little, it's still no goose eggs, and they're getting slightly better. There's some people who have physical health issues that might limit them. There might be people who have time constraints. Um, you know, I, a lot of the stuff I refer to is for people who have control over their economic destiny, whether they're entrepreneurs or in sales or what have you. But if you're a standard employee, like you're an engineer in a company, not all of the career ideas will be applicable to you, but there are yeah. some that you can still use to become more valuable within your profession. And so it is meant that to be sort of like the Oracle of Delphi in that people who would go and talk to the Oracle of Delphi would take away what they needed, what they were looking for. The book is designed to be that same way. So two different people reading the same page will take away very different ideas and concepts and actions from it. And that's exactly how it should be because excellence is our own journey, just like happiness. What makes you happy is not necessarily what makes me happy or makes my kids happy, but we can all be happier if we are doing things properly and internally generating just the same way that we can all be better in various capacities from applying these concepts consistently to improve our outlook in ourselves.
0: So if you're looking to be happier in any or more successful in any facet of your life, you can glean something from this book. Not necessarily if you're just a, you know, an entrepreneur or a sales professional, an athlete, anyone really. But that's
1: the idea, isn't it? Exactly. So I have people who have told me that they stopped smoking because of it. I've got a buddy who's actually in finance, but he was programming a video game on the side as a, uh, not really a side quest, but you know, just something interesting to do. And he's like, I released the beta version because the book pushed me um people have worked on repairing their relationships one person told me after reading the book for three months that they have completely updated their linkedin and positioned themselves to be able to transition to a much better job because they were doing the little things along the way and those are the stories or the stories that i absolutely love because none of these are huge radical changes Just like James Clear talks about, and just like the uh, cover of the book shows, it's consistent tiny little changes where your improvement comes from. For example, uh, people who wanna lose weight, they're like, oh, I'll do this fad diet, or I'll do this crash, or I'm gonna join this gym, I'm gonna work out for four hours a day. It's like, that's not gonna happen. You need to make the smallest possible change that is going to be meaningful and sustainable. So one thing, if you drink coffee, put a little bit less sugar in. I drink mine black, but that's because I started doing that when I work for the Department of Defense. But put a little bit less sugar in. Park your car 50 feet further away than from when where you normally park. And instead of taking the lift or the elevator up to the second floor, walk those stairs up and down every single time. You do that, that's a micro change. It's almost negligible. But you're going to end up expending totally about 100 calories more per day just by doing those little things. That's not a big deal. I mean, you won't even notice it. But 100 calories a day consistently for an entire year is about 10 pounds of body fat. It's
0: good to know. It is very good to know. So, really, success is about those uh, small incremental changes. And that's what this book is helping you achieve small incremental changes. Every day of your life, you pick up a different habit to drive a small incremental change.
1: Right, and when you look back over three months, six months, you'll be like, wow, I'm doing things that I never thought I'd be able to do. So for example, I'm an ultra marathoner. So I do uh, races of 50 miles, 75 miles. I'm uh, preparing for next year to do a 100 mile one at least this weekend, but I got injured uh, in my last big race. So my physiotherapist, like, no running you'll break yourself. So knowing when to pull back is an important thing in all all capacities. But I'm not a good runner. I'm not naturally gifted. I don't look awesome when I run. I look like a broken down shuffling pirate or something You know, who just got off the ship. I'm not fleet. I'm not beautiful in this. I'm not naturally talented. But running is that thing that you just keep doing it. You do it consistently and you just go a little bit further and a little bit further. And eventually you can be doing a half marathon, a marathon, an ultra marathon. And when you're getting deep down into those, when you're to the point where you're physically and mentally exhausted and you're emotionally drained, that's when you tap into the reserves that you built along the way in training and you discover more about yourself that you can then use and apply in other capacities. So once somebody does their first marathon, they are changed. Same way that once somebody earns a black belt or goes through and builds a successful company, or even tries to build a company and really pours everything to it and fails they still have changed through the process of doing what they needed to do every single day towards this goal and so taking that mindset of i'm now a marathoner i'm now a black belt i'm now a successful whatever and utilizing it in other areas of our life is one of the ways to be able to get that overall excellence the arête that the greek talk
0: Since we're on the topic of ultramarathons, because I imagine that's probably one of the hardest things you you may have done in your life, what is the one or two tips out of the book that you think have helped you really push through those hard, hard races?
1: What it is, is Friedrich Nietzsche, the great philosopher, had a saying, if a man has a strong enough why, he can overcome almost any how. And so the, if you're my first marathon that I did two decades ago, I was doing that for team in training, which is with leukemia and lymphoma society. And they're great in terms of training you for your first marathon, but more importantly is you're raising money for something other than you. You are, it's specifically for blood cancers and a couple of years later, my ex-wife's Grandfather, who I loved dearly, passed on from leukemia. And a couple of years after that, my best friend died from leukemia. So the process of working for something that is so much bigger than you, that's so much more inspiring, is where you can tap into having additional courage, so that when it's five o'clock in the morning in upstate New York in the winter, And it's snowing and you really don't want to get out of bed and go on out in the cold, dark and nastiness, you still do that. So you're making those smaller sacrifices to be able to accumulate strength, to accumulate wisdom, to accumulate financial resources, whatever, that ultimately you can utilize down the road, whether it's getting through mile 18 of the marathon, where the wall typically is where your body starts crashing or when you get to mile 40 in a double marathon like I did. And I was completely and totally emotionally spent, but one of my friends called me and even though I had almost nothing left in the tank, she needed me. And so I spent the next two hours shuffling because I was not running at that point. I was definitely shuffling along, helping her, talking her down from the ledge, making sure she was okay. And when I got done talking with her, I realized I was at mile 50 and it's like, oh, only two more miles. Anyone anyway, can do two miles at this point.
0: Mm. that's really insightful you know i've got some really um there's a few few passages in the book that really made me think and um i just want to get your take on them what one of my favorite quotes from the book uh it's not necessarily a it's not not a habit it's just just an extract i took i took from the book that made me think a little bit about about society to be honest you said take all the money in the world distribute it evenly and in two years 20 percent of it 20% 20% of the world will have control of 80% of the world's resources. And that's because of you know the distribution of work ethic and talents, you say. But what do you think that really says about society?
1: Well, society is always going to have differences in people. This is one of the things that communism completely failed with, because they wanted to treat everybody equally. And so it didn't matter if you were naturally talented or had an incredibly high work ethic, or were lazy, you would still be getting the exact same rewards for your effort. And what that does is it disincentivizes those who can outproduce. And so they stop working as hard. And that's the reason why you see the trend down. Some of the initial uh, colonies in the United States actually tried to have a a purely uh, equal system like this. And they stopped doing it because they quickly realized that didn't work. This was hundreds of years before communism was actually um, brought forward as a concept by Karl Marx. So it's been proven that to those who are going to work hard, they generally get more rewards. So if I'm going to work 60 hours a week, because that's my nature to work at least 60 hours a a week, because I'm very high on conscientiousness on the big five personality traits, and somebody who's gonna only work 20, guess what? Over time, they're not going to accumulate the same things. Now, when if we did this massive redistribution simultaneously, there could be some nefarious things going on, as we saw in Russia, when they um, basically took all of the state industries and turned them over to all the people and distributed shares in it. And within a very quick period of time, you suddenly had these oligarchies that appeared because they were getting these other components of it. But if people are going to be equalized, if you give 100 kids the exact same amount of tokens or money or game things within any situation, whether it's an online video game, whether it's a poker game, whether it's building businesses, what have you, very quickly, because of talent and effort and luck, you're going to see that a change in that distribution. And I was actually listening to a podcast this morning while I was out running. About 50% of the differential is purely based on intelligence and hard work. So people don't realize this, and everyone complains about wealth distribution and inequality in the United States. The average millionaire in the United States is self-made, not inherited. If you exclude the top one-tenth of 1% where you've got these inherited uh, mass amounts of wealth, if you look, at the next 10-ish percent of the wealth in the united states 10-ish percent in terms of population controlling almost 80 percent of wealth, those people there is incredible turnover of that the people who are in that space now their families were not there one or two generations ago and quite frankly most of them won't be there two generations from now because the kids and grandkids of the people who found the businesses or built the wealth or the amazing don't have the same mindsets, don't have the same so skill sets don't have the same drive and desire to create like that. There's a probably a
0: belief because because you say it's a split between intelligence and hard work that gets you there,
1: right? And this is, there's a lot of uh, documentation and research around this. So this is not me just saying it. This is not an adage. This is actually supported by a lot of psychological and economic studies.
0: I mean, I believe it. What I'm wondering is what's the split between intelligence and hard work? Because hard work, I think you can, you can change your attitude to hard work over life. It can go up and down. You're not necessarily Mm -hmm. born working hard, but Now, some people believe intelligence is something that
1: comes from nature rather than nurture. And there's intelligence intelligence and there's knowledge slash skill. Because, you know, every single martial arts master started as white belt. Yeah. Okay. But it was their work and development of themselves over time that made the difference. Now, some of them were more naturally physically talented. I'm not physically talented. As I say, I'm more mathlete athlete than athlete. But you know what? I did the hours. I put forth the work. So for example, every single morning, I still do the most basic um, offensive technique I learned or stand center punch. Uh, and I've done that technique at least 100 times a day, every single day for, I don't know, 95% of the time that I've done martial arts, maybe even more. So at this point, I've done that technique 10 million times. I'm faster than guys half my age because of that. Was I naturally fast? No, but I just kept working at the consistent effort. Again, going back to the cover of the book, that non linear growth curve. So work ethic will overcome talent
0: any day. So that'll help you be in that top 20% rather than in
1: the 80%. Exactly. So for example, the average American Hates their job. 75% or so of Americans really do not like their job. So, if you can, what you can do though is you can change your job position over time. I mean, you're not going to get a different, better job overnight, but by working on your skill set, working on your LinkedIn, working on your connections, you know, keeping your eyes open and consistently working on you, you can rise up in terms of your capability and then go get a job that you enjoy a lot more which means that you're going to be more passionate about which means that you're going to perform. The, um, Dr. Jordan Peterson, in one of his talks, was talking about an analysis where if you put forth 10% more effort, you're going to get about 40% more rewards. I've seen this in financial services. I've seen this in every single sort of sales organization. Yeah, there's some people who are just naturally talented, whether it's intelligence or charm or what have you. But the people who are willing to put forth the extra work every single day over an extended period of time—that work ethic, that grinding out—they will outperform their talent, and they'll outperform the talented, simply because they don't give up. It's probably one of the best tips
0: you could have in life. you know, not just the book alone is best tips in life. Work hard, whatever it is. Yeah. So as I
1: tell my kids, because my kids are wicked smart, they're each talented in their own ways, but being my kids, they're very STEM oriented, great um, mm-hmm. math and science. They love it. So they each have their own fields that they're working in. And as I've told them over and over again, I don't care about the outcome. I don't care if you get pinned in the wrestling match. I don't care if you finish last in the race. I don't care um, if your performance is not great in music. I don't care if you fail the test. I care about two things, your effort, and your attitude. Yep. If you come to the table consistently with good effort and good attitude, not just in the moment, but leading up to it, in the practice, in terms of doing your homework, in terms of taking care of the chores, in terms of doing the things that you know that you're supposed to be doing on a daily basis, you show up with good effort and attitude every single day, you will succeed. There's a second quote that I found really fascinating, and
0: this is more to do with your you're introducing the concept of the reticular activation system. Sounds quite complex, but it's probably quite a simple thing to grasp once you fully explain it. Um, and you're sort of talking about how the reticular activation system helps us filter out information around us and helps us to become either more, I think, open to seeing opportunity, um, or if you program it the wrong way probably, you know, uh, all you see is, is pessimism, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you explain to us how the, how the reticular activation system works and what we can do to help us filter the world
1: to see opportunity? Sure. So the world is filled with stimulation and it's getting worse and worse in terms of the, the variation and the types of it. So, so if you go back 20,000 years and we were like running around on the savannah, you know, it was pretty easy. And you had to pay attention to certain things. So, oh, rustling over there. Is that a lion coming to eat me? No, it's just the wind or I okay, don't have to worry. And so our attention is drawn to things like that, which is one of the reasons why new and shiny and movement uh, attract our attention, because that's part of the way humans have evolved so that we can survive. So marketers and social media have developed themselves to play into that natural tendency. And so, being able to focus and do deep work and blot out those external stimulations is something that is critical in terms of people's development long range. But the reticular activation system is how we choose to interpret the signals that are coming in for us. So you're wearing glasses. Do you, are, do you wear sunglasses at times?
0: Sometimes, but I, I
1: can't really see without them, so it's
0: I, I have to okay. wear um.
1: So when you put on your glasses, what it does is it slightly changes the uh, path of the light coming on into your eyes for the interpretation. So if the, you did not have your glasses, what would you see?
0: If I did not have my glasses, a lot of things would be very blurry, right. I didn't see much.
1: And what would you be able to focus on it with a little bit of effort without your glasses
0: i would be able to focus on things that are fairly near to me things that Mm -hmm. are further away i can make out the shape and so because i can make out the shape and because i can make out generally what it looks like i have a pretty good shot at knowing what it is
1: so so let's say that some of those you know funny colored blur uh blobs that are out there yeah Okay. Now instead of being cars or alien monsters that are going to attack
0: you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you see,
1: you don't even think of them as alien monsters because you know we're not living in the Battle of New York of Avengers or you know any sort of alien invasion or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so your interpretation is that's a cow or that's a car.
0: Yeah, it's something I'm used to seeing. It lo- it's probably a car rather than something that's going to eat me because of where I live and and what I'm used to seeing. So I'm going to go with that's a car.
1: Okay where you live and what you're used to seeing. So if you were in an environment where it could be something that could do damage to you, you would perceive and interpret it very differently.
0: Yeah. But if I'm not used to being in that environment, I'd probably still think it's a car, even though I'm in a different environment.
1: Exactly. So what we can do is we can slowly change the prescription on your glasses as the way that you actually see the world. Yeah. And a lot of that can be done internally. So for example, Um, people who have expressed gratitude, people who start doing a gratitude journal, they are programming their reticular activation system to see opportunity, to be thankful, as opposed to saying, oh, woe is me. This is horrible. You know, I don't have a million dollars. My girlfriend left me, you know, all these horrible things, you know, oh no, I'm glad I can get out of bed. I'm glad that, you know, I'm recovering from this injury so I can get better. So it's a different perception and they're programming their mind, which means that they're gonna see things slightly different. So if you, for example, do you have any friends who are serial entrepreneurs?
0: Not really, unfortunately.
1: Um, okay, I've- I do, I've got a bunch of friends like that. And where other people see problems or things that piss them off, they look at that and they're like, their brain is programmed to see opportunities to solve them that they yeah. then turn into businesses. Okay. 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 My so, friends who are in uh, security, so like former special forces individuals and like that, you watch them in a situation. They will sit with their back to the wall where they can see the, the, all entrance points. And it's because they are programmed around that. So people who've recently come off of deployment still continue to do this. They hear a bang and all of a sudden they're thinking that it's potentially a bad guy coming after them or a bad situation because they're so programmed like that. It takes a while to deprogram that, but you can program it in a positive manner. So this is the reason why I have a lot of my martial arts students when they're young. Uh, One of the things that we'll do is we'll do some shadow boxing, we'll do some uh, shadow sparring. I'll make them basically put their hands up and be like, I am the greatest. I am Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest. Because it's programming up here. So we have our hardware and our software in our brain. The hardware is the brain itself. It's the physical components. It's the triune. It's our limbic system, our uh, reptilian complex, our neocortex and all that. But it's how we perceive and understand and interpret things. As Shakespeare said, nothing is good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. So by we slowly changing how we think about it, whether we're using music to help support that, whether it's what we're reading, whether it's coaching, whether it's physical activity, whether it's actual diet, which can influence it, all these different things can slowly change the way that we interpret things. We're reprogramming the software essentially to focus more on one thing or another. And so over a period of time, if people are reprogramming their reticular activation system properly, they can have a healthier attitude. They can be more optimistic. I actually just read something that Optimists will outlive pessimists by multiple years because it directly influences telomeric health, which is at the genetic level of what genes are firing off epigenetically. And having a positive attitude will reduce your stress, thus reducing cortisol, inflammation, all these other things. And it will actually increase your metabolism so you'll be healthier, lower weight, live longer, and have a better life for the entire time just by slowly working on your attitude
0: and how do you what is the best way to slowly work on your attitude
1: whatever works for you and that sounds sort of flippant but you're not me so for me blasting epic rap battles of history while sitting there writing uh for a couple of hours that improves my attitude because i'll walk away i'll be all happy and goofy and all that you know that might not work for you it might be listening to Know, some sort of classical music, or it might be listening to you know, uh, Mongolian throat singing or sitar playing or something else, or it might be silence. It might be going and meditating in uh, nature. Find out what you need to do to expand your thinking, to focus yourself, to feel good. Physical activity is always near the top. Um, If you look at how physical activity changes the brain and improves it, almost every single person that is on medication for depression or anxiety can reduce the amount that they take just by increasing their physical activity. Not everyone, but a vast majority of them can. There's a lot of science around this. You know, same thing with uh, productivity at work. Having more physical activity will increase your brain capacity. In a lot of ways this is one of the big things that they talk not realize in longevity studies so doing these little things consistently creates that flywheel effect where it starts becoming more and more and you can start moving in the right direction and to understand what it takes to truly make yourself healthy to make yourself better to improve your brain takes a look at some what john would call shadow work you need to look inside you need to figure out you know how you function metacognitively and meta-emotionally and invest the energy and time to discover that and then start working in the way that makes most sense for you. So my book is designed to give that throughout it and help people discover what they need to do to become the best versions of themselves. So you find something that makes
0: you happy and more optimistic one day. Which is also good
1: for you long range because... You know, uh, you know, shooting heroin can make you feel really good, but that's okay. not a good thing for you long range. So yeah. it's what makes you happy and better over time. And one of the things that we've discovered is that things that are difficult to do now, but make you better, are better choices long range than things that feel really good, but take you down the worst path. So for example, I love donuts i really been, I love donuts. I had donuts before my race this weekend, probably not the best thing, but you know. So I could go and eat a half dozen donuts without blinking an eye. I'll feel like crap afterwards. Yeah. Okay? Or I can eat healthy and eat the salad and the salmon and all that. And it doesn't taste as good. I don't get all the immediate pleasure, but it's better for me as a runner. It's better for my uh, body long range. So doing the better choice. 85, 90% of the time, because we're not angels, we're never going to be perfect. But you're know, making the better choice the vast majority of the time puts you on a much better path. And just to take that one step
0: further. So if we say you're taking something that makes you happy, but is also good for you in the long term, the key, am I right in saying the key to reprogramming how you see things in the world is to do that thing over and over again until it's habit?
1: Basically, the concept, of the uh, concept right? until you actually love it. So you know, instead of going and going for a three-mile run being a punishment for having a donut or something that you dread, with, yeah. if you can mentally get to the point of "oh, I get to go run today, I get to go do three yeah. miles," that's where it really is. Because then the reward is the process itself. The, the joy and the happiness is in the doing, as opposed to having. You know, a new BMW, or getting the promotion, or any of those hedonic things that very quickly fade. You know, so oh, I get to run. I enjoy doing the running. I enjoy doing the martial arts. I enjoy practicing my instrument. I enjoy writing. Doesn't matter, you know, what the output is. It if you can disconnect that. You're going to be uh, essentially playing an infinite game where you can keep getting better and better, and you enjoy it. And the rewards are coming from the process of doing, as opposed to some external gratification on the, your phone, where you like, or you know, some other thing like that, where you need the external. Open. Okay,
0: it's really insightful. One final quote I want to talk about um, before we before we start to wrap this up. You say you you there's a part of the book where you're talking about money and um you say if you're not money savvy go find a blog to teach you something about money um each week a little each week um but if you are money savvy make sure you're not becoming obsessed and my question is there's a fine line i think between being money savvy and obsession Mm -hmm. how do you know when you're crossing the line between being savvy and being obsessed
1: Ooh, that's a good question because that applies not just to money, that applies to physical training. I mean because there have been many times where I've become obsessive and you know going too far with it uh, with money or relationship or anything. So as Miyagi tells uh, Daniel in the original cry kid, balance Daniel son must have balance where the Buddhists talk about the middle way. So money should be a tool not a means to its own end. So if you're just focused on, I need to make more, I need to make more, I need to make more, that's still that external gratification that we are just talking about. And you know, you need the money, you need the money. No, I want what the money can do. I want money so that I can pay for my kid's college. Okay, if I have an extra million dollars, it's not gonna buy my kid extra degrees. It's not gonna get them better grades. It's not gonna get them into you know a radically different school than anything. Um, You know, okay, I might get a slightly better car, but I mean, am I going to buy a $400,000 car? So becoming money savvy, you can then use it as a tool, but uh, it becomes your slave, not your master. So if you're so obsessed and you need the bigger house and you need to join the better country club and you always need more, that's where it becomes an obsession and an addiction. And that's the dangerous point. But when you're like, you know what? Okay. Uh, You know, I made a bunch of money. That was cool. I'm still going to be doing the normal things. Money is an enhancer, just like alcohol, just like power. Somebody who wins the lottery and is a son of a bitch is going to be a bigger son of a bitch. Somebody who, you know, uh, gets drunk, if they're a horrible human being, and they're going to be a more horrible human being. But if they're a good person and they're lovey and you know, loquacious like me, okay, I'm going to be more talkative and more fun you know, once I get a couple of drinks in. If I hit the lottery for, what is it now, $700 million or whatever, you know what? I'm still going into work in a couple of days because I love what I do. I get internal gratification from writing and doing podcasts and sharing messages like this and teaching people and all that sort of stuff. So money's not gonna change me whether I sell a million copies of my book this year or 5,000 copies. That is not gonna change much in my world. I'm not gonna suddenly buy 50 cheeseburgers instead of two cheeseburgers. I'm not gonna say, all right, I need to release another book and need to keep pursuing it. It's gonna be, I love the process of doing this. So money is basically, as I said, an enhancing tool and when it becomes to the point where I need that drink, or I need to, you know, make this deal because I'm addicted to the deal, that's when hopefully you got a friend who's like, "Dude, you need to back off here. You need some help." You think you need that friend to pull you away? Do you think we're capable of sort of being objective ourselves? Most people are not capable, uh, because we are dealing whether it's, you know, having the affairs, or hitting the bottle, or spending all the time on the cell phone or even to some extent running ultra marathons, like I do, is a coping mechanism because of unresolved trauma. Dr. Gabor Matei has some great discussions around this and his book, The Hungry Ghosts is incredible. I recommend everybody reads it because we almost all have trauma in our lives. If you don't have it yet, you will have it at some point. And so it's how do we react? Do we get PTSD? Are we damaged? Do we you know, have these holes in our and these voids that we're desperately trying to fill with something external? Like the new BMW, or work, or the next trophy wife, or you know the next drink, or is it something that we go through post-traumatic growth, like Domowski talks about, and makes us better? You know, Victor Frankl talked about uh, his experiences in concentration camp and how it fueled him to becoming a more complete, more understanding human being and wanting to have greater um, knowledge and insight of people, but still being able to stop and look at the rainbow. And so it's the question of how do we react to these situations that occur to us? And hopefully we can take it and uh, instead of becoming broken, we can become stronger or even better. We can be influenced and changed to become much more positive and impactful both for ourselves and for the people that we care about. So if you
0: keep your why in mind, why are you making this more money it's to achieve this particular item to buy this or why are you running that marathon it's probably going to help you as well keep your keep your habits in check because it's like now i've achieved this why don't need to go any further exactly yeah so what happens it's at the end insight. of the year it's good insight i like that yeah, like I'm,
1: I'm really impressed uh, thank you i'm, I'm picking up a lot here so thank you for bringing me on today this is fun
0: I'm glad you're enjoying it as well um like i say some of those some of those quotes I really did really did make me think, especially the first one where you take you know if you were to split all the money out in the world evenly within a couple of years, that wealth inequality is just going to play itself out again because of what we're like as people, no. but we can do something to change that. you know we can do something to change whether we're in that eighty percent or twenty percent all the habits and hard work i guess no. so so let's say you've been um You've been following this book. You've been, you've been, you know, reading it every day. You get to the end of the year, you leave here, 366 days. What do you do at the end of the year?
1: So here's the thing. When you turn the page on a calendar you get to the end of the calendar, but let's say on your phone, what happens when you get to the end of December and January one comes up and it just scrolls into the next year. Right. Yeah. So the, Stoics have a saying that no man can walk through the same river twice because the river is different and the person is different. So when January 1st comes around, what I recommend is you just keep going through the book again because the world's different and you're a little bit different and you're going to take different things out of the book at that point. So the book actually was sent off to my uh, editors right about a year ago today. So I actually read my book every single morning. I read Daily Laws by Robert Greene and my book last year, I was reading um, Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday and my book. And so I'm going through and I'm reading the book and I'm doing the action that I wrote. So I've like literally done these things by three or four times each. And every time that I read it, every time that I do it, it's slightly different because I'm slightly different. And so what I recommend with people is that they get a hard copy of it and they take notes in it, use different colors over time. So over the years, you can tell the difference and then just go back through it and you can make it, it's only two two to five minutes each morning, but it is helpful to do it. Or what you do is you go through it one year and the next year you don't, you know, you do something else, but then you break it back out after another year. And so now, this uh, you can get on that continuous growth
0: mindset. You, uh, you um, think the best quote out of all of this is no man can walk through the same river twice. Because I, I, I think that's brilliant. Um, I, yeah, I, I was actually going to ask you what your top three tips for people would be um, out of this book. That has to be one of them. So um, I'll ask you about your top two.
1: Oh, geez. So my top two. So there's a couple of- Because I'm picking one for you. I'll pick that one. I'll pick the third one. That's a good one. I like that one. And um, another one, it's not really specifically stated in the book, but I do a talk loosely based on the book where I extract some of the ideas and I call it pearls of excellence. And the concept comes from- Something my father taught me 30 plus years ago. He's like, hey, whatever class you take, whatever meeting that you sit through, whatever conference you go to, whatever lecture you attend, any personal relationships, even if they end up collapsing, always look for the pearl. That one bit of insight, that one concept, that one idea that you can take away from there to make your life better. If you can string together enough pearls, you're going to have a very rich life. So, that's something that's not specifically stated in the book, but we hint at it throughout it. So, any situation, whether it's a discussion like this, whether it's a book that you read, it's a movie that you watch, it's a friendship that you have, try and extract a pearl from that, something that you can then add to yourself and create a better version of you from. Is there a second one? Is there a second tip? Yeah, the other one is that um take the choice of Hercules and you know if you read Ryan holiday's book uh courage is calling he talks about right at the phone. um and I've got a YouTube uh on everyday excellence where I talk about this so I won't really go in depth it but in any situation we have two distinct choices that we can make we can do the easy thing we can eat the donuts we can go on the dating app instead of talking with our spouse we can ignore the red flags with our business partner and not deal with it. We can let our kid get away with goofing around instead of doing what they're supposed to. We can uh, play video games instead of cracking the book and study it. Okay, so it feels good in the moment, but what's the consequence of it? It's generally not the best consequence. Might not be a, a short-term consequence, might be years and years down the road, you know, smoking a cigarette, that cigarette's not gonna kill you, but if you're smoking cigarettes all the time you're gonna develop all sorts of long range problems because of it. So no one incident there probably is going to lead to a horrible situation, but the compounding consistent choices are. Now, the other thing is that you can do the harder thing. You can take the stairs instead of taking the elevator. You can eat the healthy food instead of the donuts. You can study instead of going out with your buddies and pass your tests and get a better job and have a better future from that. You can go and run in the rain, which is something that I hate when I do it, you know, I squishy feet and all that, but it makes me better so that when I have to draw on that strength, I have it available. So if you choose to do the harder things in a situation, generally, it's going to be the better outcome because it makes you stronger, more resilient, better in all capacities. So instead of choosing convenience, choose excellence. Take the harder path. Because generally, it leads to the better destination.
0: Joe, thank you very much for your insights and for talking to us today. If people want to get a copy
1: of your book or find out more about you, where, where can they do either of those things? So they can find it online, any place they buy books, barnesandnobles.com, amazon.com, all those places. I actually recommend that they go to my website, everyday-excellence.com. That's everyday-excellence.com. Because every single day, I put up a micro blog. So additional free information that they can draw on. They can buy my book there if they want. That's great. That buys my beer, But the, it's meant to be a resource. All the podcasts that I'm on are going to live there. So this one will be there so people can easily find it. There's all sorts of insight, uh, articles that I write, blogs, YouTube, all these different things that are there as resources to help people along their own journey of excellence. Great. Well, thank you very much. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Be excellent. We'll grow today.